We're going to jump right into the scriptures. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The last time I had the privilege of speaking and preaching here, I started uh, Romans 8 and uh, went through the first 11 verses, and we kind of went through some of the background of Romans. We won't go into all the background today, but we're going to jump right in at verse 12. So let's stand together and read as I read God's Word. Romans 8, beginning with verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed by the truth of Your Word and by the power of Your name. We pray that, Lord, in the coming moments, as we look at these verses and as by Your Spirit we're able to truly hear Your Word, that You would do the work that You will to accomplish in each one in this place. Have Your way. Glorify the name of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Romans 8, starting at verse 12, the, the title for the sermon today is From Slavery to Sonship. From Slavery to Sonship. God has done a remarkable powerful work that we want to understand better, we want to give Him praise and glory for, and we want that work to get so deeply in us that it changes everything about who we are. As a matter of fact, when, when we understand the, the big idea, the one idea I want you to understand today is this, that adoption completely alters every aspect of the believer's life inviting them to share intimately in the family life of God. Adoption changes everything and invites us to be members of the family life of God himself. Wow. One of my favorite movies is Antoine Fisher. Some of you have seen that? Yes? Powerful, powerful movie. Antoine is a young man who has just joined the Navy at the beginning of the movie. And Antoine really joined the Navy running from his life. He was raised uh, in, in foster care. Never, his dad died before he was born, never met his mother. He was in an abusive home where he was abused in every way. Emotionally, physically, sexually abused. And so you have this hurting, confused young man. And he goes into the Navy to run away from some of his problems. But what happens is 
whenever he's provoked in any way by anyone, the anger and rage that he deals with, with his undealt with stuff from family of origin issues, it comes out and Antoine's in another fight. He's in one fight after another fight and he ends up in front of a psychologist, a counselor. And some of you, especially the women, remember who that was. It was Denzel. Now, I know I sometimes get confused for Denzel, but I'm not him. So, so, so Antoine is angry, and he's thrown uh, into the presence of Denzel. Now, I know some ladies want to join the Navy right now. And, and, and work out your issues with Denzel, but he's not really there. It's just a movie. So anyway, he begins to work out his issues, and, and they go through a whole lot of stuff in the movie, but towards the end, uh, the counselor says this to Antoine. He says, Antoine, you've made a lot of progress, but there's something that you need to do. You need to go find your family. You need to go find your family. And, and he does, and... Uh, it's a wonderful ending to the movie. And when I saw that movie, I was so powerfully moved by it. But part of me was moved to tears, not just of joy at the good ending that Antoine Fisher had in the movie, but also tears of deep sorrow. Because I've known in the course of my life a lot of Antoine Fishers that didn't end up with the good ending. They ended up estranged. They ended up angry. They ended up uh, with everything but wholeness. And, and the reality is that for many of us, even as Christians here today, you need to go and find out about your family. And now I'm not even just talking about your family of origin, but I'm talking about your God, your Father. You need to find out all that you can about your family and your relationship to this God who has adopted you into his family by his love. And so that's what we're going to look at in these verses today. I want to jump right into the middle of the scripture here in, in verse 15. But, but just, just before I do that for a minute, I, I want to say this. Adoption is one of the greatest and most wonderful doctrines in all of Scripture, but it's one that you don't hear that much about, do you? We hear a lot about doctrines like regeneration, where God takes those who were dead and makes them alive. We hear a lot about doctrines like justification, where God declares those who were guilty, He declares us innocent and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. We hear a lot about doctrines like sanctification, where the progressive act of God, whereby over time he progressively makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. But we hear comparatively little about this great doctrine of adoption. And if I had to put the doctrine as concisely as I can, understanding adoption is understanding this. God comes to you and says, Matt, you're my boy. You're my boy, my son. He comes to you as a young lady and he wraps his arms around you and he says, you're my daughter. You're my, you're my family, my children. 
That's the doctrine of adoption. It's wonderful. Packer says this about it. J.I. Packer, in his great book, Knowing God, listen to this. He says, in justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. He says this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough. But in conscience, in, in all conscience, but justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. He says, in idea, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. By contrast, this now, but contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and His fellowship and establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for God, by God the Father is yet greater. Amen? And so as we look at adoption, that's what we're looking at. The fact that God has called us His children. Let's jump right into the middle of this passage in verse 15. Our first point is this. Believers are children of God the Father. Believers are children of God the Father. Verse 15 reads, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. He, he contrasts two different types of a spirit. One is a spirit of slavery, he says, that leads to fear. It could be translated this way. You did not receive a spirit of slavery sending you back into a life that's dominated by fear. He says, but you have received a spirit by which you cry out, Abba, Father. His spirit is in you, and by that spirit you cry out. To God, almighty God, all-powerful God, omnipotent God. And you say, Father, Abba, Dad. This is the doctrine of adoption. Now, it's contrasted with slavery and fear. A life that is dominated by fear. So I want to look at those two realities and look at some of the privileges that we have by adoption and contrast them in terms of what it looks like if we have a life dominated by slavish fear. So, first one, if you are a child of God, then God will bear with all of your infirmities. If you're a child of God, God will bear with all of your infirmities. Isaiah 53, the great passage, the messianic passage of the Old Testament that talks about the, the, the brutal beating that Christ is going to take on your behalf and on my behalf. All that he goes through in suffering for our sins. In, in, in the message translation of 
Isaiah 53, starting around verse 3, it, it, it says it this way. He says, one look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. Our disfigurements. All the things that were wrong with us. You've probably heard it said this way, surely our griefs he bore. He says, but we, we thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. Those who were at the cross mocked Christ. Those who were at the cross said, if you are the Son of God, get off the cross. If you are the Son of God, save yourself. And you and I would have done the same thing had we been there. We are as guilty as the Romans and the Jews who stood around that cross and condemned Jesus Christ. He says, we would have thought you're here because of your own failure. But the end of the verse says, but it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He bore our griefs. He bore our infirmities. He bore our struggles. You know, if an earthly father has a child who has a handicap of any sort, physical, mental, emotional, whatever that handicap is, if I have a child who's blind, I don't mock that child. I don't send him out into the street and say, I hope you make it on your own. We would say an earthly father who would do that, that is the height of evil, right? But what we learn here is that God, who is the perfect father, cares for every infirmity and weakness that you have. He cares about it. He loves you. He bears you through it. He'll bear all of your infirmities. You see, in this world, very often, weakness is despised and looked down on. If you're weak, if you're not good in one area or another area, my goodness, middle school is the time where we find any weakness in anyone and jump all over it. But adulthood is the time when we do the same thing but do it chilling out. Right? We jump on, we pile on to weakness, but... Christ says, in adoption, if you're adopted as a child of God, then he bore all your infirmities. You don't have to hide it anymore. You don't have to fake it till you make it. You don't have to act like you're something that you're not. You can walk with your head up in Jesus Christ and know that you're a child of God. And secondly, privilege of adoption, if you're a child of God, then he, God will bear your imperfect service. God will bear your imperfect service. Look at Psalm 103 for a moment. God will bear your imperfect service. Psalm 103, starting at verse 7, reads this way. It says, He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Verse 11, he says, 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Look at verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, his imperfect, jacked-up, little crazy kids, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. He remembers that because he's the one that created you and you were in the mind of God before all eternity began. Amen? You were in his mind. He knew what you are. He knows what problems you have. He knows all of that. And yet, he bears with us in our imperfect service. I was, a little while ago, I was watching a squirrel in my front yard. Anyone ever watch a squirrel? (laughs) Squirrels are, like, really cool, but, like, what is wrong with you? So I'm watching a squirrel, and it's over here, and a squirrel hears a bird, and it looks over there. Then it's going over here, and it runs up the tree, and then onto the power line, and then back down the power line, back down the tree, and the squirrel's all over the place. I would love to get a little squirrel blood pressure thingy (laughs) and take the blood pressure of a squirrel. And I believe it would be somewhere in the nature of 874 over 596, somewhere around there, because a squirrel is just so nervous all the time. Like, and I guess you have to be, if you're a squirrel, you know, you got to watch out for cats and dogs and, and whatever else. You know, it'd be better to be a possum. I, one time, <laughs> I heard a cat, or so I thought, in my trash can. And I went into the trash can, and I'm like, I'm going to get this cat out the trash can, yo. So I go up to the trash can, and there's a possum. And the possum's like, what are you looking at? <laughs> possum is cool, man. I put the lid on the trash can, ran it out to the park, and let him go. But, but a squirrel is just all over the place. They're, it seems like, to look at them, they're living in this incredible fear. Sometimes, we, even as children of God, look the same way. Because if you don't understand that God bears with us with our imperfect service, then you understand this, you will never do enough to please God. You will never get it just right. There aren't enough hours in a day. There aren't enough hours in a week. There's not enough that you could ever do to measure up right. And so you live in fear. When is the hand of God coming down? When is he about to squash me because I didn't do it quite right? I messed up over here and I messed up over there. But the good news is if you understand yourself as a child of the living God, he bears with you in your imperfect service. He does not expect you to be what he knows that you are not. He's working in your life, but he doesn't expect you to be what he knows that you are not. Thirdly, If you're a child of God, God will provide for all of your needs. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory 
in Christ Jesus. Of course, he doesn't supply all of our greeds. He doesn't uh, supply everything that we think are our needs. But the Bible says he supplies all of our needs. Out of what storehouse? According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, he's got the stuff. He'll supply it all. And yet many times here we are living under slavish fear, even as Christians, in such a way that we feel like we've got to complete everything and we've got to get it all done. We live like a chicken with their head cut off, just running from one thing to the next, running, 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 can't slow down, can't stop, can't be with God, wonder why we don't have any peace, and it's because we're running from one thing to the next to try to impress the Father who's already said, look, you're my boy. You don't have to impress me. I'm here for you. You're my child. A lot of times, we treat a relationship with God almost like it's a do-it-yourself operation. We're going to see in a little while why that's very much not the truth. Living for God is not a do-it-yourself operation. But God invites us because we don't have to do it all. Jesus did it all already for us. So he invites us to Sabbath, to rest, to Sabbath rest. And Sabbath is God's way of saying to you, take a chill pill. I got this. And we're saying, I can't, I can't take a chill pill. I've got to do all these things. We run around in craziness, but God will provide for all your needs. Lastly, as children of God, the privilege of adoption, if you are God's child, then you can go into God's presence at any time. Anytime, all the time. When Christ said on the cross, it is finished. And he gave up his ghost. The Bible says that the temple, uh, in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom. And access to God now was granted for everyone who would call on the name of Jesus Christ. There's nothing coming between you moving into the presence of God and being with him. That's a privilege that children have. I remember as a young child being afraid one night in my room. This happened several times. Don't know what it was. It could have been a thunderstorm like last night or something else, just hearing something and being scared in my room. But I remember, okay, I can go into my parents' room and going into their room and going into their bed and being with them and the security of that reality. I could sleep. I didn't need to worry anymore. I didn't need to be on edge because as a child, I knew I didn't have to come up with any special access card to say, can I get in today? I'm your kid. I'm coming in. Amen. And God invites us just that way. You see, under the idea of slavish fear that many of you may be living under now, you don't feel like you can go to God unless you've got everything together. Unless you, you've dotted all your I's, you've crossed all your T's, you've got everything just right. But God says, I invite you in anytime, all the time, as my child. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the scripture puts it this way in the New Living Translation. It says, let us come boldly to the throne 
of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. We find when do we need grace most? That's when we are at our worst. We need grace most when we messed up the most. And God says, come on in. You have access. You're my child. You're my kid. Come on in. Access to the Father. We believers are children of the living God. Amen. Secondly, believers are led by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. Believers are led by God, the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That word there, to be led, also means to be carried, to be brought somewhere, to be guided somewhere. So to be led, to be brought, to be carried, to be guided. And the Bible says that all who are children of God are brought, are led, are carried, are guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And in the scripture, the the, the tense of that verb is a present tense in Greek, which means this is the ongoing reality in the life of a child of God. It's not just that, yes, I was led by God. When were you led by God? April 16th, 1987, I was led by God. That's good, but what about April 17th and 18th? What about today? What about yesterday? What about tomorrow? The, the, The reality that this... Scripture speaks of is that believers are led by God the Holy Spirit on a continual basis. You're a child of God. He dwells in you. He takes up residence in you, and He leads you, and He guides you. You see, sometimes we are just people who who are trying to get better. I want to be better. Well, so do people that don't know Jesus at all. And, and here you go, some of them are better at getting better than you are at getting better. If I, if I just graded them out, some of them may be morally superior to some of you, I know they would, in this place, right? Or to me at different times, right? So, so morally, they're getting it together, but here's the problem. God is not impressed by that at all. Moral transformation without the work of the Holy Spirit does not impress God. Because in all my transformation, glory be to me, not glory be to God. So as a believer in Christ, we're led by him. And whenever we get it right, whenever we do it right, we can only do one thing and say, look at my daddy. Look at my father. He's been good. Look what he's done for me. Now look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, so then, brothers... We are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This is all under being led by the Holy Spirit. He says, we're not debtors, or we could also say we are not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're not under obligation there. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about when I say some people know how to make you feel obligated to them. Some people are masters of it. Some people in sales, for example. You know, they can, you can have a five-minute conversation with someone that you didn't even plan on, and now somehow you feel obligated to give them several thousand dollars for this car. 
And they, they knew how to weave into the conversation in such a way that you feel like, I guess I have to do this now. You don't have to do it, by the way, with that car. But, but that happens not only in sales, it happens in families. Husbands can do that with wives, wives with husbands, children, parents, all across relationships. We can learn how to lie, how to manipulate, how to do things in such a way that people feel morally obligated to do something for us when there really is no obligation at all. I remember when I was probably a little less than 13, maybe 11, 12 years old, my best friend, um, I was over at his house. They had, uh, they grew corn at his house. We used to run out into the cornfield at his house. It was somewhere around 18th and Susquehanna, um, where the cornfield was. No, wait a second. It was outside of the city. My bad. Um, anyway, he had this cornfield. We would run out to the cornfield. We would grab stalks of corn off, and, and we had the water boiling in the house, and we would shuck the corn when we were running in and throw this sweet corn, this fresh corn, right into the boiling water and then eat the water. Eat, not eat the water. Eat the corn. The boiling water, that wouldn't have been good. So we ate the corn. But the thing I loved about corn is that we slathered it with butter. Glory be to God on high. So... <laughs> So it was more about the butter than it was about the corn. So here I am. I'm 10, 11, 12 years old. My best friend, and I don't know why this occurred to me, but it did. I said, I dare you to eat a stick of butter. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, I'm not eating a stick of butter. Why would I eat a stick of butter? I don't have to eat a stick of butter. You know, I'm not going to do that. But then... See, I was a very wise and skilled person, and I gave him a reason that morally obligated him to eat that butter. I said, if you don't eat it, then you're a wimp. And so he said, oh gosh, I don't want to be a wimp. I better eat this butter. And in front of my face, my friend ate a stick of butter. I don't remember if, if it was like room temperature or if it was cold, I hope by the grace of God, that it was like warmer and, and all that. But he ate a stick of butter right in front of my face. He felt some stupid way, as only adolescent boys could feel, obligated to do such a dumb thing, right? But, but here, here, here's what I want to get to. Many times, we feel obligated in ridiculous ways to carry out deeds of the flesh, and the Bible says you're not under obligation. You are no longer under any obligation. You're not indebted to any of this. So the enemy whispers in your ear and says, you know you got to do this. Or your flesh says, well, you know the way you are anyway. Or a friend or an enemy or someone is urging you on to do something that you know God would not have you to do. And the Bible tells us you're under no obligation. You're free. You're free to decide to honor God. You're free to decide to honor God. Child of God, you're led by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You will live. Uh, one paraphrase of that verse is simply this. If you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. And some of us know what that's like. Probably everyone here in one way or another knows what that's like. But God sets us free as his children by leading us by his spirit. Believers are led by 
God the Holy Spirit. And lastly today, believers inherit the glory of God the Son. They inherit the glory of God the Son. I, I just want to, I'm going to do the three points right now together just so you'll see this movement. Believers are children of God the Father. Believers are led by God the Holy Spirit. Believers inherit the glory of God the Son. Do you see like each person of the Godhead is a part of this wonderful invitation to children of God to come in and be part of this family? And the Bible says, we inherit. Look, look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I don't know about you, but that's like really, really good news to me. And it's probably even better news to my children who know that they're my heirs, but they know what that means. It doesn't mean a lot, but to be an heir of God, to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ, that means everything. So the Bible says that we are heirs with God, joint heirs with the Holy Spirit, what do, or joint heirs with Christ. What does that mean? Hebrews 1, 2 tells us, it says, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And guess what? If you're a child of God, you're a joint heir with Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mine, yo. <laughs> that galaxy over there. Now, I'm not talking Mormon stuff, right? Where we each get our own planet and all that stuff. But like, I'm a joint heir with Jesus over everything. A joint heir with Jesus. Gee, uh, uh, Paul is writing to the church at Rome. Rome understood adoption well. In, in Judaism, adoption was very rare, but among Romans, particularly among the senatorial class, the leading class of Romans, uh, adoption was a well-known practice. As a matter of fact, the most common way to become uh, the emperor in Rome in the first 200 years of the empire was to be adopted by the emperor. So you get adopted by the emperor, and then when he checks out, you become the emperor. As a matter of fact, when Paul writes this letter, probably around 57 AD, Nero was the emperor. And Nero had been uh, adopted by Claudius, who was the previous emperor. When Claudius died in 54, Nero, at the age of 17, became the emperor of the Roman Empire. So when Paul is writing this adoption language and talking about being an heir of, 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 of God and a joint heir with Christ, they understand this is powerful stuff. This means that I have been put into this place of incredible power and glory and majesty. They understand it. But more than that, let's go on in that verse in 17. It says, Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Why do we always have these phrases like this in Scripture? Can I just go to the next part? We will, but we got to go through this, right? 
provided, or we could say, if indeed, that the word therefore that, that provided, or if indeed, is a marker of condition, and in the Greek it's called an emphatic marker of condition. In other words, you've got to look at this. All of this is if you will suffer with him. In other words, one of the marks of authentication as a child of God is that you will suffer with him. It's, it's, a, it's a way of, of making sure that you're the real deal. You're authentic as a believer, right? So, so authentication is the act of confirming the truth of a thing. This might involve confirming the identity of a person or a software program. It could be tracing the origins of an artifact or ensuring that a product is what the package and the labeling claims it to be. So as children of God, he says, all of this is yours, if indeed, or provided that, or since, you will suffer with him. So there is a, a suffering that we go through. There, there is loss that we have to go through. You know, I did adoption work for many, many years, and one of the things I found was that as much as Adoption was a great celebration in most instances for the adoptive family. It was also a time of profound loss. Often for the child who still knew that my mommy and my daddy are out there somewhere. Right? And, and, and so you have this, this, these, con, these different emotions swirling around, this, this great glory and this celebration but also this time of loss. And, and God says that with all this glory that's in front of you, yes, there's also some hardship that you will face. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to say it this way, I want to say it as clear as I know how, that if you walk with Christ, there's going to be hard stuff. And you are going to walk straight into it, and the Spirit of God will lead you and guide you in such a way that you're not going to try to find a way around it. You're going to say, I've got to go here. Jesus said at one point in John's Gospel, I must needs go through Samaria. That's King James. I like that sometimes. But, you know, we have to understand that we must need go a certain way that's hard. If you always find the easiest way, then my question would be, is the mark of authentication on your life? You are, there's authentication through suffering as a believer in Jesus Christ. But look what he says. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Look at these next two verses quickly. For I consider... That the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. One way to translate that, my way, I translated it this way, for the eager expectation of all creation, is on pins and needles, awaiting for the full manifestation of the sons of God. So, so you know, we, we, we begin to think about the majesty of this place we live in, planet Earth, four planets away from the sun, 93 million miles away from the sun, which gives us light and it gives us warmth and all of these things. When I was 
growing up, we used to have nine planets. Now we only have eight. Poor Pluto, man. It got knocked off the planet list. But um, So we live in this little solar system. We live in this galaxy called the Milky Way where it's estimated there's somewhere between one, I think it's 100 million to 400 million stars. The sun is one star. Astronomers tell us that in the in, in, in the observable universe, there, is a, there are at least 170 billion galaxies. 170 billion galaxies. Our little planet, our little sun, all of these other stars in our galaxy, and 170 billion other galaxies, uh, Spaces that we can't even imagine, planets and asteroids and stars. And the Bible says that every atom, every proton, every neutron on every planet, on every star, in every black hole, in every place in deep space is waiting on pins and needles for you and I as children of God to be, fi- to be fully manifested as who we are in Christ. When he comes again, we put off mortality and we put on immortality. When he comes again, we put off sin once and for all. We'll no longer have anything in us that desires sin whatsoever. And we will put on the fullness of the glory. We will put on our Jesus suits, y'all. We'll get a new body that's like his body. And, and, and the whole creation is groaning, the Bible goes on to say, and is moaning and it's waiting for this wonderful manifestation of the children of God. I pray two, two points of application today. First of all, if you've heard all of this crazy rambling from me today, but you don't know Jesus personally, as your Savior and as your Lord, then adoption is not a doctrine right now that you can celebrate, but you ought to dread. Because adoption says that until you're adopted, you are not a child of God. Unlike what we hear out there in the world Many times that we're all just children of God. Adoption says when you become adopted, you're his child, but before that, you're not. Ephesians said we're dead in our trespasses and sins. It says that we're children of wrath. And so if you don't know him today, my prayer would be that you won't leave this place, you won't finish this day without knowing the wonder of a Savior and of a God that you can call on as Father in an intimate way. And you know what? You don't have to wait until you grow up and are 18. When you're a baby, you can start saying, Dad, Dad, right then and right there. And you can know him as your father right away. I pray that you'll get that. Jesus said to those who persecuted him in John chapter 8, who thought they were believers, he said, no, you're not children of Abraham. You are sons of your father, the devil. So adoption is a line of demarcation between two groups of people, children of God and children of the devil. And my, by God's grace, I pray that if you don't know him today, you will talk with someone before you leave. You'll get more information. You'll pray and you will accept this Christ and become his child. But secondly and lastly, if you're a believer in Christ today, but 
If your life looks more like a squirrel, living in slavish fear of God as some cosmic judge who's looking and inspecting for every possible flaw in your life, and when he finds it, he's coming to crush you, I pray that today you will begin to get this idea of adoption and God as your father so deeply into your mind, into your heart, into your spirit, that it just begins to ooze out of you. I pray that you will preach this to yourself over and over and over again. I pray that you won't continue to live life as a child of God, acting like one who only knows God as judge. And I pray for some of you who have had terrible, horrific, difficult experiences with your earthly father. Maybe you were abused in a number of ways. Perhaps you don't even know your earthly father. Perhaps you know him, but he has put you out of his life. I pray that you will see that this father will never leave you or forsake you. He is there for you. Two things I just want to say in closing. I read this in a book some time ago. It speaks to my heart. I hope it speaks to yours. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by God, my Father, and that I had nothing to do with it. My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by God, my Father, and I had nothing to do with it. What a God. An old hymn from the Methodist church says these words. I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing all glory to God. I'm a child of the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible and amazing reality that you would adopt wayward, messed up, baby kids like us, that, Lord, you in your infinite love and wisdom have decided to make a group of people your children and to bring us in with the full rights as family members in Christ. I pray that you would just quicken our hearts to this reality and grow us up as your children, that your name might be glorified in and through us in all these things. Amen. Amen.